Let's bow our heads. Lord, I pray that you will be in my words this morning and in our hearts and minds, and you will do your holy work there, that we may have our lives transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. June the 23rd. My dear Wormwood, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the high command. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We're really faced with a cruel dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism, and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics. I don't think you'll have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suggestion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. Don't worry, I haven't gone completely mad. Some of you, I know one down here, because she was chuckling away, uh, will have recognised this as an extract from uh, this book here, uh, which is The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, the author of the Narnia children's stories, but also one of the leading theologians of the 20th century. The book is a series of letters to Wormwood, who is a junior devil, from Screwtape, his uncle, who is a senior devil. And the correspondence gives Wormwood uh, advice as to how to stop his patient, as they refer to him, um, who is a young man who's recently become a Christian, how to stop him growing and deepening in his faith. So all of the terminology in here that we uh, in Christians would use is turned around. For Wormwood and Screwtape, those who follow Jesus are what they refer to as the enemy. And as you can see from this passage, all the things that we would think of as being appalling or evil are from their perspective talked about as wonderful and positive uh, and vice versa. Just pop this to one side. Do have a look at it later if you would like. You're welcome to borrow it from me if, if you wish or do grab your own copy. It's genuinely funny and really thought-provoking because it comes at everything from the way that you don't expect it to. And it really challenges um, your thinking about, um, about what it is to be a Christian, or at least I found that to be the case. And, and it's just a thoroughly good read as well, recommended to you. But what's important for what I'm speaking about this morning um, is what can, what's contained in this extract um, 
from the Screwtape Letters that I just read about how we often think about evil. Not just about evil as something vague and nebulous, uh, maybe a bit wishy-washy even, the absence of good perhaps, but about evil as a tangible presence, about evil in the form of a figure, the devil, Satan, the enemy, or whatever we wish to call it. If any faint suggestion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, writes Screwtape, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he can't believe in that, he therefore can't believe in you. So often we buy into that rather comic image of evil, the cartoon devil who sits on one shoulder uh, joshing with the, with the little angel sitting on the other and pulling uh, the, the human in between one way or the other. But as we think this morning about um, battling in prayer, as the latest part of our sermon series on prayer, as we think about battling in prayer, I want to start by saying to each one of us that as Christians, we are in a battle. We are in a war. There is an enemy. And that enemy is not a figure of fun in red tights with a pointy tail and a pitchfork. In our Christian lives and indeed in the lives of anyone, whether they follow Jesus Christ or not, every man and woman and child is faced every day by multiple decisions to be loving or to be cruel to speak kindly or to speak harshly to do good or to do evil and the force that's trying to pull us to cruelty and harshness and evil is real and it's tangible and it's all around us I certainly don't want to super-spiritualize life by saying this. There are plenty of things that happen in our lives that are not due to spiritual warfare against the enemy, or from the enemy, but they're due to the laws of nature, or straightforwardly human stuff, human interventions, or because some things just happen like that, accidents. But equally, there are times and locations in our lives when it's entirely legitimate to think in terms of spiritual warfare. I often think that in the affluent northern hemisphere in which we live, we've rather lost this sense of spiritual battles going on throughout life, going on all around us. In the church that Claire and I attended in London before we came up here. Um, there was a, a pretty substantial proportion of the congregation who were black African from a, from a whole range of different countries, um, particularly from Nigeria, however. And one thing that they all had in common, regardless of where they came from on that continent, was a much greater sense of the possibility of the physical presence of evil. That was still part of their worldview that perhaps we 
uh, in our rather affluent surroundings have lost. And they therefore were very strong in the fact that we Christians all need to take a stand against what St. Paul calls the principalities and powers, what he said in the passage from Ephesians that I read at the start. Claire and I uh, have seen this in, in practice on one, one particular occasion, or certainly it, it had a, a substantial impact on me. Claire's sister uh, lives in Sierra Leone in Freetown. She's a pharmacist out there in the, in the main hospital in the city, and we went to visit her um, a short time before we came up here. And uh, we went to the I think it's the only museum in Freetown, which is a sort of ethnographic museum, tiny little museum, and the vast majority of exhibits there uh, are about their traditional culture, and uh, one room in particular was full of traditional animistic, shamanistic, religious items um, of costumes that shaman would wear when they took part in um, traditional spiritual rituals. Um, masks, um, cloaks, bits of animal tacked onto them all. I have never been in such a tangibly evil place in my life. That's not to say anything about the people who live there, absolutely not. But going into that room, there was a sense that made my hairs stand on end of something tangibly of the enemy in there, tangibly against all the good and the light that Jesus Christ stands for in this world. So that's my, my personal story of that, if you like, in that very particular context. Um, it's a great country with some wonderful, wonderful people, but there is this legacy of dark and of secret societies and of control um, by forces that are not of the light that is part of their history. And of course, all the legacy of slavery plays into that as well, in which we, as um, the Northerners, um, so tragically participated. Evil is present. But moving on and thinking about um, thinking about what the Bible says to us. The Bible, the word of God, is unequivocal about the presence of evil in this world. Time and again, we see the figure of the enemy, the spirits who serve him, and the forces that obey him, ranged against the love and the peace, the goodness and the joy that are the marks of the kingdom of God, of God the Father of Jesus Christ, his Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In our reading this morning, one of the most famous passages of Scripture, Christ, who's just been baptized, who um, has just been affirmed by his heavenly Father, this is my Son whom I love and whom, with whom I am well pleased, and who is at this moment, uh, we read, full of the Holy Spirit, Christ is led out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And for 40 days there, he is tempted by the devil. This isn't some vague narrative of, of Jesus had uh, some sort of existential crisis of confidence and he really wasn't sure about what he'd been called to do. 
puts Jesus under direct spiritual attack. He's confronted by the temptations laid before him in person by the devil. The Bible is 100% clear about this. Jesus, the Son of God, is tempted in person by the enemy. He'd just been affirmed as uh, the Son of God and as the Messiah. So the devil immediately tries to lure Jesus into thinking about himself and using the powers that he has been given by his heavenly Father in ways that twist God's design for his Son and for his ministry on earth. All three temptations of Satan are very specific to Jesus' situation and to his person. But also with Jesus facing them not only as holy God, but also at the same time as holy human. They're exactly the same sorts of generic temptation. Materialism, egoism, and hedonism, if you look at the, the, the three temptations. They're exactly the same sorts of temptation that each one of us faces as well, and to which uh, many of us, if not all of us, succumb to. This is spiritual warfare at its starkest. Jesus, the Son of God, tempted by the devil. But it's also Jesus, wholly human, experiencing exactly the same sort of spiritual attack to which each one of us is exposed day in, day out. He is tempted just as each one of us is tempted. So how does he respond? Jesus turns not to his divine and supernatural powers as absolutely he could have done uh, had he chosen to do. And of course, this is what uh, the devil precisely wants him to do. But Jesus turns to the place to which each and every one of us has exactly the same access as him. He turns to scripture. In the famous passage from chapter 6 of St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, uh, an extract of which I read at the start, uh, St. Paul describes the armour of God, the clothing and weapons with which we, uh, which we have at our disposal to use in our battles against the enemy. In that passage, St. Paul calls Scripture, Scripture the Word of God. He calls it the sword of the Spirit. The vast majority of the items that St. Paul lists are defensive. The shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. But the word of God is a sword. Yes, that's a weapon that can be used defensively against the enemy's attacks. But also, definitely, a weapon to be used offensively against him. So we have in the example of Jesus, not only this most graphic example of spiritual warfare, one that's repeated again and again, in fact, throughout his three years of public ministry as he encounters and defeats and drives out the agents of the enemy. 
evil spirits and the like. But we also have Jesus as an example, one which he invokes repeatedly, as does St. Paul in his writings and all the early Christians do in their accounts of the lives, their lives and their ministries in the book of Acts and elsewhere in the New Testament. We have their example of one of the key ways in which we fight the enemy when we encounter it, through the spiritual power that is found in declaring and praying through Scripture. Scripture is there for us, there for us to use in our prayers, to inspire us, to embolden us, and to assure us of God's presence and his power. To inspire, to embolden, and to assure. As we use scripture in our prayers, praying through verses, praying through chapters, reflecting on the spiritual truths we find in them, we align ourselves with God and the way in which he works, in uh, the phrase that the book that we are following in this sermon series and which some of you are following in your home groups, John Eldridge's Moving Mountains. He talks about the way in which God works, as Katie referred to last week. All scripture we know in St. Paul's words is God-breathed. As we pray using it, we're declaring the very words of God over a situation in our lives or the lives of others around us, our family, our friends, uh, the wider community, maybe um, looking wider still to, to global or national issues. Each one of us will encounter this sort of spiritual battle throughout our lives. Being a follower of Jesus Christ isn't some sort of passport to a life in which tough stuff passes us all by. That's not the case. Scripture, indeed, very definitely says that that's not so. The tough stuff will come our way. Often, as in the case of Jesus, it comes immediately, uh, in his case, coming immediately after his baptism. Battles come at moments when we believe we're really taking ground from the enemy. Because it's precisely then that Satan most needs to try to fight back against us. And perhaps human nature being what it is, it's because we're often at our most susceptible to attack when things appear to be going well, when maybe we've got a bit of pride coming in, when the success is going to our heads. As, again, C.S. Lewis wrote, the whole of this world is enemy-occupied territory. So it's no surprise that attacks do come. Indeed, every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, of course, we petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That evil presence acknowledged as part of the world around us. But whether this attack comes when we feel we're in a good place or whether we're at a low ebb in our faith or our health maybe, or life is just tough, and maybe that's where you are at the moment, when we're vulnerable to spiritual assault, 
whenever this attack comes, we always have assurance in one vitally important fact. No matter how much we may be under attack, no matter how great our pain or frustration or anger, regardless of all this, Jesus, as we read in chapter 2 of the book of Colossians, Jesus has already vanquished all the powers and authorities and anything that the enemy may try to throw at us since he's already won the victory for us on the cross. If you're going through a really tough time at the moment, hold on to that. Hold on to that assurance that no matter what is going on in your life at the moment, Jesus has already won the victory for you, for each one of us. And not only is that the case, but Jesus gives to each one of us as well the same authority that he has over the enemy and into which he stepped during his three years of public ministry. As he declares when he sends out the 72 disciples in Luke chapter 10, he gives us authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. In this, our Heavenly Father has given us all that we need to live a life freed from the enemy's assaults. They will come, but we have the assurance of the cross over the whole of our lives. So the enemy and our battle against it are both very real, even though Jesus has won that ultimate victory already. But we do have this authority given to us by Jesus to stand against the principalities and powers of evil, and we have the truth of the word of God as a mighty weapon to wield against that enemy and to inspire and embolden and assure us of God's presence and his power. But in practical terms, what does this sort of spiritual warfare prayer look like? John Eldridge, in his book, Moving Mountains, suggests there are four parts to what he describes as warfare prayer. And these are as follows. First of all, identify the spirit. In a situation where there appears to be some sort of spiritual stronghold, something of the enemy at play, pray reflectively about the situation. Ask Jesus to show you what spirit is at play in that situation. Ask Jesus to show you the route to bringing his light into that place. Maybe that's a spirit of, of shame or of fear, but a spirit that's not of God. So first identify what that spirit is in that particular situation. Secondly, renounce the enemy's claim over this situation or life. Pray a prayer that renounces the enemy's claim on 
that person, that situation. There's some reason why um, a spirit has uh, been able to enter into that person's life or that particular situation or indeed your life. It may be that in identifying it, there are areas where um, perhaps some form of repentance is necessary. Bring those areas into God's light. Bring them to the foot of the cross in prayer. Break the enemy's power over us, over that situation. And their power to use that situation, that spirit, against us. So identify the spirit, first of all. Secondly, renounce the enemy's claim over that situation or life. Thirdly, bring the work of Jesus against any spirit. Proclaim God's truth over the situation, especially praying through and praying with Scripture. But also stand firm in an opposite spirit to that of the enemy in practical ways too. Maybe if you're praying about a situation or an individual where, uh, where there's been some bullying or something like that. Continue to speak words of kindness in that situation. Continue to, to, to move in the opposite spirit, as he would put it. Do practical things to bring the light of God into that place, that situation, that person's life. Maybe where there's been prejudice or racism in a community or an organisation. Go out of your way to befriend a person of a different ethnicity to yourself someone who's been subject to that sort of prejudice. Take a step in the opposite direction. Bring that work of Jesus into that place. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, in the words of James. So identify the spirit, first of all. Renounce the enemy's claim over that situation or life, secondly. Thirdly, bring the work of Jesus against any spirit. And fourthly and finally, send any spirits to the judgment that Jesus has for them. Declare that they have no part of that person's life or that situation. Banish them to wherever Jesus will deal with them. Jesus does this, we see frequently in his ministry. He casts out demons. He casts out spirits. We have the authority in his name to do the same. That's the fourth step that John Eldridge talks about. For some of you, with some of this, I imagine that this sort of praying may well be very challenging, may well, quite frankly, be a bit uncomfortable. If that's you, I understand that that's the case. But I encourage you, gently if I may, to look at the scriptures, to look particularly at Jesus' ministry, and ask yourself whether anything that I've suggested here is in any way contradictory to or, or goes beyond 
what Jesus himself does by way of battling in prayer. Genuinely, I believe that there isn't. But if there are things about which you're not comfortable, come and have a word with me afterwards or, or drop me an email or give me a call and I'd be only too happy to talk through that with you. But after the service today, there's also an opportunity if uh, you feel you are or you know someone who is in a real spiritual battle at the moment. There's an opportunity to receive prayer ministry in the Lady Chapel. We'd be delighted to pray with you if you would like to bring a person or a situation to us and we, we would pray those prayers of, of battle, pray, the, pray those warfare prayers over that situation with you. I'll bring us to a close uh, with a prayer now. Would you like to bow your heads? Lord, we thank you that on the cross you died that we might be set free from all that binds us. And we thank you that we already have the victory in you. Help us to be bold in our prayers as we confront the enemy, bringing the truth of your word and the loving presence of your Holy Spirit into lives and places and situations where they are so desperately needed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to respond in worship now. So if you'd like to stand, we will raise a hallelujah together in the words of our first worship song. Yeah, the, the battle, as Tim was saying, is, is real. And we can arm ourselves with God's word first and foremost, and we can fight back in prayer. And I think Tim Hughes said we can use worship as a weapon as well. So whatever the spiritual battle is, and everyone is tempted on some level, no doubt. So, you know, let's, let's use these songs uh, as our battle cry this morning.